Welcome to episode 399 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a grand conversation with poet, educator, Philip Brady. We talk with Phil about how there's nothing like a classroom, his interviews, and what they teach him. Poetry as an interface, from Ireland to Brooklyn to Queens and Ohio, the anti-self, masks, and to breathe, among other things. A grand conversation with Philip Brady on this week's program. We also have an EWSA titled Brooklyn Bridge and a brand new radio play by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, titled Shut In as well as a poem called Bracelet from My Darling. And all of this, of course, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 399 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. See you. 
Brooklyn Bridge. I am on the Brooklyn Bridge, driving my beat-up family van. The traffic is tight and moving fast. I am in control, but scared about losing it. Suspended above, so high in the cityscape sky with millions who don't care if I live or die. It is solely on me. The deeply entrenched fear has a hold on my mind and thus weakens my heart, spirit, and soul. How can one have so much at their feet without having to pay a price replete with pain and suffering? I think this mindset is not intrinsic in me as a person of normal human dimensions. I believe a culture through an institution steeped in teachings, supposedly from an all-knowing God who will judge and reward or procure punishment in a dualism so empty it shrivels in the warm December sun as it lifts itself over the East Mountain while illuminating a sense of wondrous calm deeper than fear can go. For love must be stronger. Otherwise, all of this movement on our external sphere of physical existence is naught but desperate folly, a wasted random set of motions without purpose, rhyme, or reason. Why should that be the way? Let's instead speak wu-wei, stillness in movement. Today we could be truly free and genuinely happy, with no expectations, only sounds and smells, wishes simple as the resonating harmonics of all that here together dwells. In harmony, no matter what one's conjured weakness otherwise compels, we live, we take, and we give, so much we are the same, no hate, no blame or shame. Courage as we sit and walk, drive and talk. The mystery of it all transcends us like the movement of a leaf on a tree, fluttering beautifully in the wind of this world. Its stem disattaches, and into the beauty it goes. We go. Let go, be whole, and all is now. And then I see a parking spot. I hope I can back in. Let's go down together 3 a.m. tomorrow night I'll take you over anything Let's go out together Broad daylight in the street I'll take you anywhere 
music fills my car And your voice breaks every time I'm still wondering If I know who you are I hang on every line Let's go down together Down by the old mainstream I'll take you over anything Let's go back in time 1959 I'll take you Radio King Your music fills my car And your voice breaks every time I'm still wandering I know who you are I hang on every line Lawrence, how are you? Philip Brady, good. How are you? Good. It's nice to have you on Chubaros and Rock on Tours again. Well, thanks for having me. Before we get into our next great conversation, let me give some folks who may have not heard the first one or two uh, a little background. Okay. Philip Brady has a book coming out in uh, March, I believe, 2021, and it's titled The Elsewhere, Selected Poems and Poetics. His most recent published book is a collection of essays, Phantom Signs, The Muse in University City, published back in 2019. He's the author of four books of poetry, a previous collection of essays, a memoir. He has edited a critical book on James Joyce and an anthology of contemporary poetry. He has received the Snyder Prize from Ashland Poetry Press, a Forward Magazine Gold Medal, an Ohio Anna Poetry Award, the Ohio Governor's Award, and six individual artist fellowships from the Ohio Arts Council, and Thayer and Newhouse Fellowships from New York State. One of his essays earned notable recognition in Best American Essays, and work has been nominated for four Pushcart Prizes. He has done residencies at Yado, the Headlines Center for the Arts, the Ragdale Foundation, the Hambidge Center, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, the Tyrone Guthrie Center in Ireland, the Hawthorne Castle in Scotland, and the Soros Center for the Arts in the Czech Republic. He has taught at the National University of Zaire, University College Cork, and on semester at sea. Right now, he is the Distinguished Professor of English at Youngstown State University and also serves on the low-residency MFA faculty of Wilkes University. We're very happy to have, once again on the program, Philip Brady. So, yeah, um, weird times right now. Uh, last time we spoke... 
all was well with regard to, you know, the world health situation. How are things going for you during this pandemic? How strange has it been? Well, <laughs> Lawrence, I wish I could say it were that strange. But when you get to be uh, my age, um, you realize that uh, it's a good thing when people aren't coming to see you and it's not because of you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's actually the biggest impact for me has been on teaching. And it's been a very uh, kind of ambiguous difference in the sense that, of course, I miss seeing students face to face. There's nothing like a classroom. Uh, but having said that, I have used this time to uh, to interview like yourself. I've become a kind of interviewer and I've collected about 60 interviews of poets, writers, editors, literary agents, filmmakers, uh, playwrights, um, and other uh, literati, which I've embedded in online courses in um, uh, literature and creative writing and publishing. Excellent. So it's been my social life. And it's also been a great learning opportunity for me. And they're all up on YouTube. You can, you can find them under Etruscan interviews. And I'm now in the process of taking these, and which are already, as I mentioned, embedded in online courses with other material. Uh, and the uh, courses are being taught at YSU and at Wilkes. Uh, and the interviews are available to the public. So I'm in, I say I'm in the process of trying to organize them in a platform to make them available to, to students beyond those two institutions, including secondary school students, my idea being that instructors or students or, or groups could look at whatever interviews were, were of interest to them in whatever field and then could contact me and say, hey, I really like this guy, uh, you know, this person. And I'd love to have them come visit my groups. And I have a fund at the YSU Poetry Center, which I can use to uh, remunerate the people I've interviewed to do, to do individual in, interactive stories, you know, face to, not face-to-face, Zoom-to-Zoom with whatever group would be interested. So that's been my pandemic uh, obsession. And it's been uh, a real, as I say, a real way to revisit all my teaching and, and see it in a very different light. I, I hear you. I mean, I'm also a professor, and and I I've learned the the uh, I guess the value and and some of the um, the I guess unanticipated pluses of being able to connect with folks via Zoom and other you know other ways via the internet. It's you could do a lot of interesting things that you didn't think you could do, and you can connect with all, people all over the world that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise. It's kind of neat. Yes. And of course, there's been a lot of readings. You know, as you know, uh, Lawrence, I'm also a publisher, a publisher of uh, Etruscan Press. And so here we are in the middle of the pandemic and we're having these quote unquote book launches. Well, it, you know, uh, usually, of course, they're they're face to face readings uh, and parties, receptions, uh, even sometimes week long visits. We've had the Wyshire Poetry Centers hosted writers for a week at a time to visit local uh, community centers, schools, uh, prisons, uh, uh, elderly care places. None of that, of course, is possible now. 
Um, and the book launches themselves have all been conducted you know, by Zoom meetings. So uh, both, good, you know, good and bad. You wake up in the morning and you got four events that you can attend, you know, all over the country. Right. Just by going through your, uh, you know, your, your email. Uh, and of course, it's a little bit unsatisfying. You know, there's no question about, uh, you know, I find myself, Lawrence, I find that when I'm doing a Zoom reading, and I've done several, uh, the weirdest part, well, there's several weird parts, but the weirdest part is the fact you're looking at yourself. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> really, you, know, you say, oh, my goodness. <laughs> As if we're not <laughs> self-absorbed enough, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's bad. And then, of course, the fact that, that uh, you know, you're looking at these black boxes, so you're not able to really read the room. Right, exactly. You know? So, yeah, so it, it is, but you you do have to, uh, and I'm sure you you value the ability to to sort of be flexible and to adjust. I mean, being a an educator, being a a professor, is part performance. You know, you have to yes. put on a different sort of performance now uh, with all these little. Uh, rectangles or squares on your screen for sure, but it sounds like you know you know how to do it. You know how to how to uh, adjust and and make it interesting. And um, I you know I, I forgot to mention your involvement with, with the trust, and that's how we kind of got to know you via our associate producer, Doctor Pavis, a very important uh, organization that uh, does offer up a lot of wonderful uh, authors to the world. Uh, so yeah, thanks for for reminding us. And I, I want I want to talk about your book. I want to hear a little bit about it. The elsewhere, uh, what the title is very compelling. What, what um, you, can you tell sorry, us a bit? Ahead. Yeah, well, the title comes actually from physics, believe it or not, of which I am completely ignorant for the most part. But the bass player in our band, which we're retired now, uh, Brady Sleep, we played for many years, but we're retired. But our bass player was a physicist. And so in off hours, you know, I would learn little tidbits, including the fact that in physics, there's a, a condition called the elsewhere, you know, which is uh, a, a place beyond, uh, uh, beyond understanding. Um, it's, it's a kind of condition of otherness uh, that, that, that they have at least intuited, if not mapped. And I think that in some ways, I, you know, I'm using this in... Um, in the way that so many physics uh, terminology is, is very poetic. It is. Um, and, I, and, and I'm using it in the sense of uh, uh, this idea that poetry itself um, is an interface um, between our quotidian lives, our prosaic lives, and something else that's activated by rhythmic utterance. Mm, I like it. And I... I, you know, when you talk about, when you mention uh, physics being poetic in, in and of itself, I, I totally agree. I, I studied uh, electronics engineering, which is kind of like a, a subset of physics. And um, it, it, for me, it is very enjoyable to, to read an expert's explanation of how the universe works. It is, it's sometimes breathtakingly beautiful. Even if you don't totally understand what they're saying, right? Well, which, <laughs> which again approaches the condition of poetry, right? Um, and uh, yeah, my favorite little tidbit that our that my bass playing physics uh, uh, professor taught me was that quarks 
come from Finnegan's Wake, the word quark. Oh, <laughs> so, get out. <laughs> That's so excellent. Physicists are, are uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're studying uh, the, the, the great works of, of our greatest physicist, James Joyce. <laughs> uh, it all overlaps, you know, it really, yes. it really does. We've talked about that in the past, I believe. Um, and so some of, some of these poems then, do you, uh, in, in this uh, series of, of work, of poems, do you, um, I guess, sort of interpret your own experience with the physical world, with the spiritual world, and call it the elsewhere. I mean, and and, and can you, you you take us on a little journey? Sure. Um, well, it's a it's a journey. It's a plumb uh, plumb line, really, through a life. What I've done, Lawrence, is uh, taken the seven books that I've published, uh, four books of poetry, and three books of, of prose. And uh, I've taken selections from, from those works in addition to new poems, a cycle of new poems. So it's new and selected. But, you know, I mean, these are, of course, uh, I'm a senior citizen now. Just uh, So I, I just moved up in the vaccine line. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I'm a, I think I'm number 22,300,000 or something like that. <laughs> um, anyway, anyway uh, so I've taken books that were, that are, some of them are the first one, you know, came out. 30 years ago uh and rather than just have them as selected you know like okay here's poems from this book and then i go to poems from this book in some kind of chronological order in order to to record or commemorate past books what i tried to do is reconceive the books in terms of where i think they were what what they were doing and and plus the fact that there is poet there's you know, uh, three books of, of lyric poetry, lyric narrative poetry. Uh, uh, then there's a book-length poem called The Banquet with the Ethiopians, A Memoir of Life Before the Alphabet. And then there's two books of essays, By Heart and Phantom Signs, and a memoir to prove my blood. Mm. So there's a whole lot of different mo- modalities here. And my first question for myself was, okay, I wrote them all, obviously, Um and sometimes writing them was an overlapping endeavor so that the essays may have been written while I was composing poetry during the same time period, mm-hmm. even though they came out separately, you know, in separate years, separate covers, separate books. So what I was really trying to do is to kind of recreate the conditions under which the poems and, and prose were conceived as opposed to how they eventually were published. And they're published according to their conventional genres. Uh, you know, essays, memoir, poetry, but they weren't written that way. And so what I've done in this book is interspersed the poetry and prose, the way more or less to recreate the, the conditions under which they were made. And when you ask about a journey, I mean, for me, it's a, it's a journey that begins in a particular locality. When I started writing, or at least when I felt like I was writing something that was true and authentic for me, uh, it, it started out from my family. I grew up in Queens, New York, mm-hmm. and I, my parents were Irish. And so I grew up in this kind of talk about elsewhere. I grew up in this kind of elsewhere where uh, I wasn't I wasn't familiar with the Beatles. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I didn't know anything about pop culture. Uh, I listened instead to uh, Irish albums that my parents had there. I'd, I'd uh, 
uh, and hands and knees back and forth, I rocked in front of the cabinet hi-fi, taking in these albums and this, this different culture, which was, of course, itself a simulacrum of, of the culture. You know, th- those Irish albums weren't necessarily representative of what it would be like to live in Ireland. They were an attempt to uh, reconceive and, and uh, idealize uh, a past, which itself, the Irish past, had been broken by colonization, uh, by linguistic division, and so on and so forth. So here I was in Queens attempting to reach out toward an idealization which itself was a mirage. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's where the poems began. Were were your parents uh, immigrants? Yeah, from Northern Ireland. My mother came from uh, the north of Ireland. My father's parents came from Leitrim, which is a border county. So he was born in the States. Um, but they met in Brooklyn, which, of course, at that point was like the 33rd county of Ireland, as well as, <laughs> as well as uh, you know, the Italian center. I'm sure there's more Italians in Brooklyn than there were in Sicily at that point, and more <laughs> Irish in, in Brooklyn than there were in Cork. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Jews, Irish, you know, Brooklyn was, was an ethnically, uh, well, it's still, it's incredibly ethnic. It's more ethnically diverse now, probably, than it was. Oh, yeah. But at the time, of course, it was it was uh, Irish, Jewish, Italian. So that's where they met. And, uh, and so they, and my mother had come over when she was very young. Um, so I was living in this place, which was not really a place. And that's, that's where the first poems really came, uh, out of that locality. And then uh, I started delving into different, um, uh, places. For instance, in my first book, uh, there's poems from Queens, but there's also poems from Africa because I've been, as you mentioned, I taught at what was then called the University of Zaire, and that's now the Congo. And even that, you know, Lars, I'll tell you that, you know, even that has has the earmark of in of what Mobutu called authenticity, which was an attempt to idealize the African experience. And so he threw off the name Congo as having been colonial and instead took on this name Zaire. And uh, so that was the country at the time, but it's gone back to being the Congo. And my, and my, I think probably the first realization I had that poetry was the agency to move out of oneself into other, literally other conditions was was when I came back from the Peace Corps and I found that anybody asking me about it, of course, they weren't that interested people. You know, I'd forgotten about the fact that I wasn't necessarily the center of the universe. And uh, I had this experience that I wanted to explain to everyone and people were polite, but uh, that that was about it. But the point is that even to myself, the stories sounded exotic and idealized, just like those Clancy Brother albums. And I realized that poetry had to somehow render uh, the the feeling of being of having the extraordinary and exotic feel like it's every day, because that's what it was like in Zaire. It didn't feel exotic, even though telling the story of two men, uh, ca- you know, carrying uh, the carcass of a 18 foot python on a pole, you know, through the main street. You tell that in the United States, and it sounds exotic. Right. And yet, the the but, real is you know at the time it didn't feel exotic. Well, for the folks doing it, it it certainly wasn't. Right. Yeah. And so, 
what my poem, what I tried to do in the in that book, was was to uh, was to take on certain personas, where I could refract that sense of, uh, of of egotism, really, of saying, "Look at me! Look at look at this circus-like environment which I've lived in." At least it appeared like a, like that to the to the American listeners, and so I wrote poems in the voice of a historical figure whom I'd known from childhood. A uh, figure from Irish mythology or uh, you know iconography, a name Sir Roger Casement. Yeats wrote about him. Yeats wrote, you know, I say that Roger Casement did what he had to do. He died upon the gallows, but that is nothing new. Afraid they might be beaten before the bench of time. They played a trick by forgery and blackened his good name. Well, the title of my first book is Forged Correspondences. Mm-hmm. And Roger Caseman's uh, letters, and, and, and keep in mind, you know, Caseman was an internationally renowned figure in Africa. He's the model for uh, Joseph Conrad's Marlowe. Oh, wow. Darkness. Wow. He was the one who made that trip up the river. Conrad never made the trip. Conrad got sick halfway to, to what is now Kisangani, where it was then Stanleyville. Uh, he, he didn't make it all the way up to Stanleyville. Uh, Casement did, and Casement wrote about it in a report called the Congo Report. Uh, you, when was that? When, well, circa? Uh, in the, uh, 1904 was the Congo Report. And so what I've done is I've written these letters or composed these poetic letters uh, about that, that journey in his voice. That, and that was that was the uh, cycle of poems in my first book, along with those poems that I mentioned about locality. And the the title of that first book again? Forged correspondences. Forged correspondences, and yeah. that and that about forty years ago, you said. That's nineteen ninety six. So not quite. It's, I guess that's what thirty years ago. Thirty like, years ago. Years, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, that was my first book, um, and it was, as I say, in in, in a sense, it was my feeling that poetry was going to be the means whereby I reached a kind of what Yeats was calling the anti-self, not for realization of some particular incarnation, but the means whereby one moves into the elsewhere. And this is different incarnations. And this is certainly, uh, we talk about a journey. It's, it's a metaphysical journey. Uh, yeah. For sure, and I mean, you're all in. Obviously, uh, you're a poet to your core. Uh, the way you are trying to understand this human experience is is the context and is the 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 fuel, I suppose, for your your life's work. It's it's been yeah, it's been the means, and and I've been so fortunate. To be to uh, to have an opportunity to to deal with it as in, in every different iteration from utterance, um, because you know I I learned my poems and other many other poems by heart, and so for me, it's a way of passing and measuring time and passing the day. You know, it's it is utterance. It is a remapping of the synapses. When you talk about people talk about audience, I think I don't want readers necessarily. I want believers, people who are participating in this kind, in this sense of the potential for changing one's life 
through the agency of rhythmic utterance and the synaptic connections in my own mind, I, I would like to think are, are synthetic or plastic, changeable, whereby this this means. And I've also had the opportunity to deal with it as artifact, because as a publisher, and you know, I I get to uh, amplify my own sensibility by finding, you know, greater. And, and, and more diverse uh, oeuvres in the work of others uh, and to get to publish that and to get to actually, you know, when you publish something, I, you know, I tell, I tell people, Lawrence, I say, you know, your mother, your, your friends, your spouse, your dog will eventually get sick of you talking about your work. <laughs> um, but your, your, your publisher never will. You know, I mean, it, it is almost a confessional type of relationship. And I've had, I've been so blessed to have that kind of relationship with these authors. We're both communing. So, you know, it's like a hyper zoom, you know, but we don't necessarily meet, but we meet on the page. And, uh, you know, you feel like you're partly authoring or at least assisting at the birth of these works. So I've, I've been able to see poetry both as utterance and artifact. And then also as as a commentator through my own prose, because most of my prose is about poetics. Beautiful. I, I love how how uh, consumed you are with all of uh, your work. You know, it it's inspiring, and and it also um, sort of connects to something that I'm a firm believer in, gen- more general general belief that you know, for for a human being to to live a a more fulfilled life, maybe a little bit more of a happy life. They have to be, or they should be connected to the arts in some way, shape or form. And it seems, you know, if, if people could have the kind of uh, relationship you have with your poetry, uh, with whatever works for them in in that sort of uh, milieu, you know, art, They'd be happier. They'd be more in touch with themselves in the in the the greater world. I think so. And I, you know, I, what I love about that, about the, you know, uh, in in so many in, in in newspaper stories or other, you know, other means of communication. Sometimes we think, oh, that's so sad. You know, tragic things happen, and we 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 uh, you know regret them, and they're and certainly. Over the last four years, my goodness, mm. um, you know, the whole darkening of our conversation, the whole corruption of the idea of community and uh, allegiance, you know, that's been the horror show of this uh, of this whole regime. Um, the, the thing about poetry, and I think you're right to, to say it's it's not a matter of poetry. It's a matter of whatever whatever deep obsession one uh, immerses oneself in, you know, whether it's, it's, it's physics or engineering or, 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 or whatever modality. There's poetry and, to all of it, really. It's poetry. It's really poetry. Just a, we think poetry is not a genre. Uh, it, you know, it's a faculty, mm-hmm. the human faculty that, is, that, that, that is striated in any time when one experiences the, the the glow, if you will, of 
moving out of one's particular uh, circumstances and and body. I don't want to sound you know completely uh, unhinged, but uh, <laughs> the the idea that it's that immersion in whether it's language or whether it's mathematics or whether it's uh, uh, dance or or you know physics, whatever it might be. It's the act of immersion. Right. I mean, cooking, for, uh, for know, it could be, it, sure. could, it could be right. yard work, whatever. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a pity that we, that we have limited our, our, this word poetry. Not only have we limited it, you know, to, to literary poetry so that we're even excluding, uh, all other kinds of rhythmic utterance like music, you know, lyrics and music. Um, but even, you know, in a broader sense, it's that faculty, and uh, we don't have a word for it, except no. poetry. Yeah, beautiful. We're talking to Philip Brady, a poet, an educator, among other things, uh, publisher, and uh, a guy who, who's who's great off the bench, for sure. Uh, <laughs> called him last minute to, to help us out on the program, uh, fill in uh, uh, a vi- uh, one of our guests couldn't couldn't uh, make it because of some personal things, and and Phil right off the bench, man, he hits a home run. Excellent, nice talking with you uh, yet again. Be- before we before we part this go round, um, any any thoughts for what's coming up in twenty twenty one? Things you hope for, perhaps, or any reflections on twenty twenty? Uh, well, any any kinds of any kind of insight you like to share with the listeners? Um. Well, I'll tell you, Lawrence. You know, for me, I think this. I think we all feel this is a watershed year, um, and a year of ref- of reflection. Um, so that, and a year, in a sense, that has has um, been a a metaphor for everything we've been talking about. You know, the wearing of a mask. You know, both as a way of being part of a community, because when you wear it, you're hoping to protect not yourself but others. Um, and, and of course, uh, uh, you know, in the Greek sense, you know, putting on a, uh, uh, a face that is archetypal so that one doesn't, isn't, one's differences are masked. And so we're all walking around with these baby blue faces, um, which is in a way very beautiful. And I think that I know for me as a teacher, and as a community member, and I, I feel this especially in, in New York City, where I am right now, where uh, even though COVID is spiking, it's certainly when I look around and I see people, I feel this enormous uh, sense of, of, uh, of community and, and, and allegiance to, to this group of people, all of whom who have just chosen to protect one another um, by, this, by this means. And I hope that we carry that on. Uh, even when we're not wearing masks, that we re- that we remember that breath is both very personal and anonymous. Nicely said, Philip Brady. And uh, folks want if folks want to get the new book, the Elsewhere. Uh, how how could they do so? Amazon, I, I suppose. Uh, Amazon, and it's published by Broadstone Books. That's uh, uh, BroadstoneBooks.com, and. Uh, It'll be available in March. Elsewhere, Poems and Poetics. 
by Philip Brady. Thank you so much, Phil. It's it's always a pleasure talking with you. And again, thanks for coming in at the last minute. I'm sure we'll be talking with you in 2021, too. Until then, have a great uh, holiday season and a, and a great new year. You too, Lawrence. Great talking to you. Thanks for the invite. Take care. See ya. speaking, a shut-in. I'm ambulatory and not especially agoraphobic, for what it's worth. I rarely leave the confines of my childhood home. Get out, Glenn, Mother says repeatedly. Get out into the world. The world. As if she knew the world and what's out there in it. It's just me and my mother in this old house. Downstairs is neat as a pin, musty though, and looking pretty much as it did when I used to rush home from grade school for a lunch of grilled cheese sandwiches and tomato soup. The furniture hasn't changed. The pictures on the walls, bland landscape views, and a few pictures of Jesus and the infant of Prague that predate my birth, they haven't changed. 
and the smell in the morning of mother's breakfast of scrambled eggs and Melba toast with orange marmalade. That hasn't changed either. The world out there, that changed. And mother and I have grown older and odder together. Father left long ago. So there we were, the two of us, if not happy, well, who's happy? Content? I thought we were. It's so easy to delude yourself, isn't it? I thought I was content. I spent a brief time in the workforce at numbing, menial office jobs. One day I stopped going to work, and I never went back. Mother came into some money a little while ago. An ancient, confirmed bachelor uncle living in a rent-controlled apartment in New York conveniently died, and my mother was the sole heir, much to the chagrin of my bitter cousin Mary, who lives next door to us. Uncle Richard had apparently built up a bundle in his long, solitary life. I assume the solitude, perhaps erroneously. He died rich, despite regular theater-going and dining out and charitable donations to missions in Africa and Asia. Mother kept the details of her windfall secret. You'll find out when I die, she said. Oh, Mother, you'll never die, I replied. Uncle Richard's bequest was enough for us both to live on. I gave up on even the idea of work, and Mother retired early from the hat factory she claimed to loathe, but I suspect secretly loved. She missed the routine, the gossip about her bosses and co-workers, her girlfriends on the assembly line who made hat after hat. Now it was just us, every day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, bicker, bicker, bicker. Get out into the world, Glenn, she'd say. And so we puttered on. Then one afternoon, Mother came home, flushed with excitement. She had been to a travel agent, much to my surprise. I'm going on a cruise, Glenn. A cruise, Mother? She had never mentioned a cruise to me. Alaska. Alaska? Alaska. I didn't say anything about the cruise, about not being invited on the cruise, about anything. I went upstairs to my room and stared out the window at my bitter cousin Mary's backyard, which she had populated with various gnomes and religious statues, St. Francis and the Virgin Mary and so on, a garden party of the virtuous. Mother went to Alaska, and she hasn't returned. In the morning, the house no longer smells of her breakfast of scrambled eggs and Melba toast with orange marmalade. Postcards started appearing in my mailbox, primarily of moose in majestic surroundings or moose saying something wacky in cartoon dialogue bubbles. Cryptic notes were written on the backs in my mother's elegant handwriting. Having swell time. Life is so full of surprises. Why did I wait so long to begin living?
Be well, Glenn. Embrace change. And then I met a man. Well, I had to track her down after that last cheery card soured my breakfast. Our connection was poor on the ship-to-shore call, but Mother managed to relate the story to me in a brisk, matter-of-fact, yet merry way. Her ship stopped at Skagway, and outside a gift shop she met a handsome, rugged man a few years her junior. How many years, Mother? I asked. She didn't reply to my query. And guess what, Glenn? Ronald's a shaman. After an intense lunch filled with laughter, chat, and revelations, Mother went to Ronald's apartment to see his collection of the complete Barry White on vinyl. She never got back on her ship. Mother, Barry White? At which point she throatily sang a few lines of Never, Never Gonna Give You Up. And then she laughed in a way I had never heard her laugh before. Have to go, honey. Ronald's waiting. Take care of my ficus. Mother, a shaman? But the line was dead. I glanced over at the wilting ficus in the corner of the living room and debated whether to give it much-needed water or to put it on the curb on garbage day. I slowly ascended the stairs to my room, thinking of my mother and her shaman beneath the blue Alaska sky. Please in every way I can 
My darling, shadow of this pen, the sun illuminates, and because of that light, there too is dark at the same time. This physical world beseeches one to cry wet, salt tears of joy, and forever lullabies too. Steadfast soul envelops this being in a warmth that is real.
episode 399 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Philip Brady, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli. Pete Joseph, Golden Smog, Sylvan Esso, Barry White, Phoebe Bridgers, and of course Terence Blanchard and Branford Marsalis too. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to do our best with this time. Take care.